This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow at CSIS, and I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center. We are privileged to speak today with Peter Piat, medical doctor, microbiologist, and since 2010, director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which he has led during an extraordinarily busy period, encompassing the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa, the outbreak of Zika virus in the Americas, and now the global coronavirus pandemic. Before joining the London School, Peter served as the founding executive director of UNAIDS, the joint United Nations program on HIV-AIDS, launching that institution in the late 1990s as global attention on human immunodeficiency virus really began to shift from a predominant focus on Europe and North America to Sub-Saharan Africa and its impact at the regional, national, local, and really family levels. Peter was part of the international team that identified the Ebola virus in the 1970s, a history that he chronicled in his 2012 memoir, No Time to Lose. And I should add that in 2009, Peter served as a member of the CSIS Commission on Smart Global Health. So Peter, welcome to Pandemic Planet. When we met last in person in London in early February, about a year ago, you had just returned from Singapore. And at the time, I think cases of the coronavirus were increasing in Asia and really just starting to be reported in Europe. Now, of course, Europe and the Americas, North America and South America, have really become the center bearing the bulk of the cases and the crisis. So I just wanted to ask you to look back 10 months to, to a year in the past and ask if you were surprised at how things took off in Europe and the Americas, given what you had seen in, in Asia at that point. And given your long experience in Africa, just to ask what your reaction to the comparatively slower pace of the pandemic has been in that region. Yeah, I, think I, I was surprised how fast it went. One, because maybe I believe too much of the, the ranking, the global ranking of preparedness of countries that was published and where the US and, and UK came on top. And they've had some of the least effective, the worst responses with the highest uh, death rates. So clearly that approach for ranking of uh, preparedness was uh, pretty relevant, I would say. And secondly, I also overestimated probably the compliance of people with what are actually very simple, in theory, very simple measures like social distancing, wearing masks, uh, hygiene, and so on. And, uh, and thirdly, what I knew was an issue, uh, may an issue potentially, was leadership. And that leadership that was not there in the US and in the beginning also not in the, in the UK. So yes, I, I underestimated how 
uh, it could get out of hand. And it's not once, but now for a second time already that in many European countries and in the US that things are gotten even worse. And, and I think um, we probably will see an even worsening of the situation in uh, the rest of January, early February as a result of the holidays and uh, so on, and, and also the winter season, of course. So, yeah, I was too optimistic, but that's my nature. I'm always optimistic and hope that people will see how bad it is and then take collective action. Because in theory, what is nicer? That through your individual action, you protect yourself from becoming infected and you contribute to protecting the community. So it's really the best synergy between selfishness and altruism in theory. But in practice, that's not what has happened. So, you know, as you look at the differences between how the pandemic has evolved, you know, over the past 11 to 12 months, you know, thinking about Europe and the United States and the Americas on the one hand, and kind of the comparatively slower pace of how things have developed in sub-Saharan Africa. How have you analyzed or thought about those differences? And as you see the number of cases beginning to pick up now in Africa, how are you thinking about the future of, of that trajectory? I was very worried from uh, the early days of this pandemic, what would happen in Africa with high density populated areas, people in poverty. So they, they're living on a 24 hour life cycles for their livelihood. So forget it for a total lockdown. And the, in general, the, the capacity of the public health and the health system. But I was wrong there because one, it was strong leadership and many African countries actually took pretty drastic measures to control this epidemic, to prevent the spread of it. And let's not forget, nearly all cases came from Europe and a few from Asia, whereas in, in, in general, Africa is accused of being at the source of these epidemics. It was the other way around, definitely. And so they took measures before there was a big problem. And I think with lockdowns, and I think that probably made a difference but then there's also something that I certainly still don't understand, and that is that mortality has been relatively lower in the first wave, also severe disease. So I was not so clear. Some of it probably can be explained by age structure. The population is so much younger than anywhere else in the world. And we know that the older you get, particularly after 65, that that's where the risk for severe disease and mortality from COVID-19 goes up dramatically. But there may be other factors, such as cross-immunity with other coronaviruses that people have been infected with. However, now, particularly since early December, we see a major resurgence in many countries. In South Africa, which was already the most affected country and Partly, I think, because they have a better system of monitoring the epidemic, but perhaps also because they have far more obesity and diabetes and so on. Also, again, known risk factors for severe illness from COVID-19. But also in Nigeria, in other countries, the epidemic is now getting, I would say, getting out of control, overwhelming health systems. There is a the virus itself, which is uh, mutating and it may be that this new variant, so a mutation of the virus that was identified first in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, uh, and that seems to be 50 to 70% more transmissible, more efficient in transmission than the classic 
strains of the virus, that that has played a role, uh, just as we see in the UK in a, an, an acceleration of the spread of the pandemic, and that may be also associated with this, with a new variant, and a British one, and we, we could talk about uh, an epidemic in a pandemic. I mean, this new strain that spreads faster. All that we'll have to see, but I, I changed my mind now for the third time or the second time. The first time I thought it's going to be really bad, and then it turned out not so be that bad in, in, in Africa. And now it's clear that it is really getting out of control. That is why it's so important that we do everything we can to support access to the vaccine also in Africa, not only in the wealthiest countries. Thank you, Peter. I think that brings us to the question of how to move ahead and accelerate access to safe and effective vaccines in Africa and other low-income and middle-income countries. You've been very involved in the discussions around setting up the ACT accelerator and within that, the COVAX facility, the EU, which you've been advising the leadership at the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, has played a lead role along with WHO, the foundations, Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, the UK, uh, some of the key European powers. The United States, we're hoping, will come into COVAX in a major way. There's $4 billion in the latest emergency stimulus bill to go towards Gavi, the vaccine alliance, for procurement and distribution of vaccines to low and middle income countries. That's a big gain, I think, here potentially. And we have the Biden administration looking very aggressively to get involved in new and important ways. Before we talk about the European Commission and its role and, and your view on the commission, maybe you could just tell us, first of all, how are you looking at the COVAX facility? How significant? What do you see as its real prospects? There's been a debate on whether it's going to be viable. It's in its infancy still, but it's moved forward very, very rapidly. But there's still uncertainty hanging over it. Already in April, uh, if not much, uh, there were discussions to see how can we, one, accelerate the development of vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics on a worldwide scale. And we know in the US there is BARDA with a mega effort. And also, a, how can we uh, ensure that there is equitable access to the tools, because the T and ACT accelerate is tools, regardless of how wealthy a country is. And some of that was actually inspired by the experience of antiretroviral therapy, where it took nearly 10 years between the announcement that uh, we have a treatment for uh, HIV infection that was in July 1996. And, uh, and it took about 10 years before a million Africans had access to that. And we didn't want to wait for that. I would say it's really the, the leadership for this came in the first place from Ursula von der Leyen. It's a European Commission which hosted the initial discussions with the WHO, with the various countries, high-income countries, but also others. And this was in April when they pulled people together for that first. Yes, in April. Yeah. In April, also with Gavi and the CEPI and the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation. So it was really a, a coalition of the willing, but for the I would say the first time it was the, the European Commission was the broker for all that. And Ursula von Leyen also hosted the first uh, fundraising event on the 4th of May. After that, the various pillars of this uh, ACT Accelerator, and one is on vaccines, the other one on therapeutics, and the one 
on diagnostics. These pillars led a life of their own with the one on vaccines and with COVAX, led by CEPI and Gavi and WHO in a support role. And um, I think it's, uh, um, how to say, without it, we would be in much worse space, that's for sure. But we still have to learn because it has never been done before. What has never been done before, that is to make sure that in no time that the new vaccines uh, will be available all over the world. And that's not only a matter of money. Money is important. And there, Gavi has a lot of experience in mobilizing resources to improve access to vaccines. But there's also CEPI, a very important role in terms of developing new vaccines. And CEPI was about the first institution to give grants to develop vaccines against COVID-19. I remember I was there. That was during the World Economic Forum in Davos. So that must be like the 20th of January. First grants were given already. So the challenges are now to make sure there is enough money, but also that there are enough vaccines and then that there is some kind of equitable distribution of all that. Additional complication in a sense is that there are also some high-income countries and some middle-income countries that are struggling to have access to vaccines. And that goes from Australia, Switzerland, Singapore. So the the countries that are not part of these regional entities, and of course, the the US is a case, a separate case. But these countries, they're in a more difficult position to negotiate access to the vaccines, procurement, good prices. And that's what uh, COVAX is trying to to serve both, in a sense, to make deals that will benefit uh, both low-income countries, uh, countries that classically that Gavi works with, but also some of the higher-income countries through quite a sophisticated mechanism of contributions. The real test will be the next six months. There is now a, a commitment and arrangements for about 2 billion vaccines that can be delivered. The difficulty is that everybody wants the vaccines today, and they're not there. Plus, only three or well, uh, in the West and then uh, to Chinese and the Russian one have been uh, licensed. So we'll have to see how it goes and it's to bridge the next few months that is the, the key. And because we have country, the US has negotiated sufficient vaccines for the population, the EU also, and that's a first time ever that you negotiate on behalf of all member states, the European Commission, rather than each member state going on their own. And that means that it was a much more interesting, not only deals, both for the companies, they don't have to deal with 27 different states, but also I think there is a, a mechanism now in place that means that every single country, big or small, will have a decent access to Uh, to vaccines. Uh, That's the EU. But what we now need is uh, not to neglect Africa. And that's not only a a moral obligation, I would say, but also it's clear that it's not over until it's over everywhere. In other words, we can't just make the US or the EU or Australia safe and free from COVID or uh, COVID under control thanks to vaccines because there will be constant reimportation. So we need to vaccinate everybody. Also, because you never know, the longer the virus circulates, the higher the risk for new variants, for virus isolates that may actually escape from the impact of the vaccine. 
So it is a case of not only solidarity, but just of enlightened self-interest to make sure that the vaccine is universally uh, used and available. Peter, can I just follow up with a couple of questions here? I think that people were quite impressed that Ursula von der Leyen and the European Commission stepped forward in the way that it did. I mean, this was occurring in a period when the most wealthy and powerful countries in the West and elsewhere were going out and locking down supplies. And it was a period when people were talking about the dangers of hyper-nationalism and that these solidarity efforts like COVAX, a coalitional effort, might languish or be just so underpowered that they can't meet the requirements. And we'll see if we can get those 2 billion doses to cover that 20% of requirements of health workers in the most vulnerable in the next year or two. That's still just covering 20% of requirements, but it's still quite ambitious. And we know that the hypernationalism is a big force. We know that of the 14 and a half billion doses that are on contract to be produced, something like 12 or 12 and a half are locked up in these arrangements by the most powerful and the most wealthy, including the European Commission. Why did the European Commission step forward in the way it did? And what does that foretell? Are we going to see continued leadership? And as the Biden administration comes into power, are you hopeful that we're going to see a dramatic re-engagement on a transatlantic basis of a U.S.-European partnership with many others, obviously? But are you thinking that that's the next moment, the next pivot? Yeah, first of all, I think this is a classic example of leadership, of personal leadership of Ursula von der Leyen, who, let's not forget, has a medical background. She's an economist and a a politician, of course, and she understands public health. And she also saw early on that individual states can't deal with this. And frankly, in the spring, when we had the first wave, the response in Europe was pretty chaotic including borders closing for export of protective material, diagnostics, uh, etc. And that goes against the fundamental principles of the European Union, where there is free circulation of goods and persons and all that. In the beginning, that was not that uh, welcome, I would say, uh, from my impression. Also, because health is not a legal competency of the European Union. I mean, for example, uh, trade is um, the European Commission negotiates on behalf of all member states. Look what happened with Brexit. It was one person, Michel Barnier. He spoke on behalf of 27 countries, and that was that's the way. That, and he had this mandate. When it comes to health, no, and that's for good reasons. Uh, healthcare is so specific to each nation, and often rooted in history. In Germany, we go back to Bismarck, you know, with this system. So there's no point in bringing it all together. However, this epidemic has shown that when it comes to outbreaks, to prevention and so on, that the European Union needs to step up and that there is a need for trans-border, supranational type of uh, of action. And and so that's uh, what happened. Also, I would say at the global level, the void left by the US, which in recent times has always had the leadership role and played that role when it came to pandemics, be it from HIV to Ebola. Well, the US was not there, to say the least. And uh, and then we have China coming up with all the issues around that. So that's where Europe came in. And I think that's going to continue. It, it is an example also internally to uh, turn a crisis into an opportunity to strengthen institutions and mandates for 
dealing with outbreaks from uh, strengthening the European Centers for Disease Control, uh, European Medicines Agency, but also we are setting up now a European BARDA, it's called HERA, a Health Emergency Response Agency, not to compete with BARDA, actually to work closely together. And there have been quite a few discussions already at, at an informal level, but I certainly hope that there will now be a strong re-engagement with the U.S., and between the new administration, the Biden administration, and the European Commission, the European Union, on many things, but certainly on this global health security. And one opportunity will be the Global Health Summit on the 21st of May in Rome. That's a G20 chaired by Italy and co-chaired with the European Commission by Ursula von der Leyen and Prime Minister Conde. And I hope that it's not going to be only looking internally at the US and at the EU and some high-income countries around it, but also will create this much needed, um, yeah, I would call it vaccine solidarity. Let's go from the opposite of vaccine nationalism. For example, the EU has commitments for 2.3 billion doses of vaccines. Some of that single dose, if uh, the Janssen vaccine works for a single dose and others with two doses. So that is far too many for the total population of uh, Europe if uh, all the vaccines work and pass the test. So it makes good sense that, that there is a sharing of the scarce vaccine supply at the moment for, in the first place, Africa and also in Europe, what they call the neighborhood that's in the West Balkans which are falling out of any system. You know, they're not low-income countries, but they don't have access. And I hope that the U.S. will also do the same. If every country releases, I don't know, 5 or 10% of its vaccine allocation, and that that could go to Africa, that could already go a long way. And then in addition to the Gavi, COVAX allocation, and to start as soon as possible with uh, vaccinating, for example, healthcare workers, those are most vulnerable. So it is, a, I think, a new type of constellation and indeed a new role that the, the Commission has taken on. And I very much welcome that because uh, just imagine, particularly for the last year, who else would have taken up the leadership? And that has happened with the EU, I would say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Catherine? So I, I like this term vaccine solidarity, but I want to shift for a second to, I guess, research solidarity yeah. and think about that. You know, you really have a unique vantage point as a microbiologist, virologist and director of a research institution with research partnerships all over the world. And, you know, really, on the one hand, I mean, we've seen unprecedented research collaboration around the discovery, the genetic sequencing of the coronavirus, and lots of reported sharing of, of data and research. But at the same time, lockdowns and the cessation of international travel has led to just the postponement of research projects and stymied all kinds of new research as well. So I just would like to ask you to reflect a little bit on the openness that has apparently characterized a lot of the COVID-related research. Do you see that kind of openness remaining after the crisis phase has passed? Hopefully it will pass. But do you see that remaining or do you see concerns or challenging signs ahead for the future of scientific research? And especially as you think about kind of a new generation of researchers who you know might have been poised to really initiate their work and come into their own over this period, what do you see about this new new generation of researchers, particularly those from lower and lower middle income countries who, who may have been 
kind of hurt the most during this period? Yeah, Catherine, I, I think there has been a real change. And one of the positive aspects of this epidemic has been sharing of information, scientific information, research in an unprecedented way. And that went from the first sequence of the virus that was released out of China. And then in no time, it went all over. And that's in contrast to when you think of SARS in 2003 or the Ebola outbreak in 2014, when we had to beg researchers to release the data because they wanted to have the scoop and to there was embargo and the scientific journals were also part of that problem. And that's not happened. And it is actually at the moment, um, my personal problem of many is this, this, this avalanche of information and how to manage that. Uh, but it's a better problem to have than, than there's no sharing of information. And a lot of the findings now are first published immediately on, the, on some of these preprint servers. I wish they had some more pronounceable names. And, and again, that is breaking the monopoly of some of the journals, although uh, we have to be careful also because not everything that ends up on a preprint uh, server is of good quality. So I think there will continue to be a need for peer review and all that. So that I think will be very hard to reverse. And let's not forget that was already the norm in disciplines like physics, mathematics, uh, even economics, but not in the life sciences. And some of that has to do with the patents and uh, the business around it. But this epidemic has shown that you can have entrepreneurship and making money if you want with uh, some innovations and yet be also totally uh, transparent. So that will be very hard to reverse and the new generation of researchers, they are very much committed to it. Now, the question will be, will the research establishment continue to do this? I think the answer is probably yes, because the, uh, at least in the West, the major research funders from NIH to the UK uh, Research and Innovation, the Wellcome Trust and so on, and, and the Gates Foundation, they are also committed to this. And that's, I, I prefer that far more than the very bureaucratic approach to open publishing and open science and so on, which of course you can't be against it, but that's now hijacked by a set of rules that are for me far too rigid. The researchers are in control, not the funders, as is the case with open uh, science. So I really welcome that. On the other hand, particularly younger researchers having, are having a very hard time not only as individuals because of isolation. Uh, I see that at our school, our postdocs and so on. I mean, London is an expensive city. They, they share flats. They have difficulty being on Zoom all day uh, from the kitchen table while there is someone in the room next door or in the same room because they share flats. That's very hard. That's why at our school, we transform some of the library in safe spaces for younger colleagues who live in very small spaces and then and could come there and some of them have children and now the schools are closed so it's really really very tough we were fortunate that the research funders here in the uk actually agreed to to extend existing grants and, and all that so but the question is how long can that go on quite a few universities have been laying off staff and so on fortunately we we are in a better position and I've always been very, very careful uh, fiscally, so we're there. But 
the impact of COVID on the whole research enterprise is going to be enormous. Plus also, of course, lots of people shifted their research to COVID, but it's not that other issues have just vanished, uh, even just in the medical field. The sooner we're all vaccinated, the better. Thank you, Peter. In closing, what gives you the greatest optimism today and hope as you're thinking about the future? Well, the fact that in such a short term, less than a year, we had vaccines that came to the market, I would say that's fantastic. That's, of course, because it's building on sometimes decades of research that sometimes was blue sky research, but then uh, this, these vaccines and mRNA vaccine or even the, or the adeno platforms, they were not invented in 2020. So that tells me also that we need to continue to invest in, yeah, in, in some basic research that may lead to something. So, but that gives the biggest hope. But the second one for me is that a hope for a renewed leadership with the Biden administration if the Biden administration uh, teams up with the African Union, where now President Cyril Ramaphosa, there's the president of the African Union at the moment, until the end of the month of February, and the Africa CDC, plus the European Union, ASEAN, and hopefully also with China and Japan, that we really can create a global force, a task force that can go in spite of all other geopolitical differences and disputes and tensions, which of course will continue. But when it comes to tackling COVID, we need to really join forces or we will all go under together. That's the alternative. Well, Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to really, on the one hand, reflect back on a year of unprecedented research, discoveries, international collaboration, and the importance of leadership both in the past and as we look ahead to addressing the pandemic in the year to come. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk today. Good luck to you as you address these pandemic issues in your own work in the year ahead. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, thank Steve. You. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 